Looking to optimize your performance, grow your mind, and change your system? Well, you've come to the right place. This is the Bold Base Performance Podcast. Good morning, Bold Base fam. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast today. On today's episode, we welcome back John Corbo. In case you missed episode number five with John earlier this year, go back and listen to our initial talk on blood flow restriction training. John brings on a guest of his own today, Jeremy O'Keefe. Jeremy is one of the current sports PT residents with Fairview. He graduated with a doctor of physical therapy degree from the University of North Dakota in 2019. He is a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the NSCA with experience coaching collegiate, high school, and youth athletes. Jeremy's interests in rehab include progression of strength and conditioning and return to sport, BFR training, and working with hockey players of all ages. Today we take an updated look at the landscape of BFR, both in the rehab setting and training world. We additionally dive into the principles of strength training, focusing on what sets, reps, and programs are best for each individual. Sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. Am I the first return guest? You are the first nope. two-time guest of the whole well, bit. You're the first guest and the first time repeat guest, so we, we must really value what you had to say, and hopefully our listeners did as well. Privilege. It is a privilege to be here. Thank you for the invite. And you have your own guest here today as well. I do. I'd like to introduce Jeremy O'Keefe. He is our sports physical therapy resident. So Fairview and the Institute for Athletic Medicine has a one-year sports physical therapy residency. And once someone passes their PT physical therapy boards, they can elect to enroll or apply for a one-year residency program. There's a lot of different residencies, sports, ortho, women's health, neuro, etc. And so we offer sports and ortho within Fairview and the Institute for Athletic Medicine. And Jeremy is one of our two sports residents this year. So Jeremy, welcome aboard. Glad to have you here. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Anytime, of course. We're glad to jump into BFR today and also to talk a little bit about strength training, different principles around that. So John, if you don't mind, can you give us a little recap of our first podcast on BFR, just kind of the general principles of it and how it's been effective for you in clinic? Yeah, we had a good conversation last time, so if you had a chance to go back to the first podcast, that'd be a really good refresher. Try to summarize it within a minute here. Um, So BFR is a training device, and typically you use some sort of band or strap, or in our case, in clinic, we use an FDA-approved tourniquet to occlude, occlude blood flow to the working limb. So there's still a little bit of blood flow that gets to the working limb, but then it fully occludes the blood flow back to the heart. So we trap in all of what we call venous return, and in turn, it, it accumulates metabolites. So I like it to think of it this way is, you know, if you go out for a long bike ride, that's your aerobic system working. And when your aerobic system is working, you can go for a really long time. But if you lift really heavy weights or you sprint, you get that nice lactic acid burn. Well, with BFR, if someone is at, has an injury or is uh, recovering from surgery and they can't lift heavy and they can't sprint, we could put a tourniquet or a strap or some sort of occlusion device on their limb, have them exercise with really light weights, and then we get, they, get, they would get the same benefit 
as if they were lifting heavy or sprinting. So in other words, it's a biohack. It's a way that we can trick the system into gaining adaptations from lifting heavy or sprinting without actually having to do those things. And for you and clinic, just to kind of summarize for other people, how often do you use it? How beneficial has it been for you? Um, Because I've noticed, especially I was at a conference and someone had a BFR question and someone yelled out, ask John Corbo. So (laughs) you are definitely tied to it in the in the Fairview and the Twin Cities sports medicine uh, world. But uh, why did you tie yourself so much to BFR? What stood out to you and how beneficial has it been to you? Number one, I think it solves one of the biggest issues we have in therapy in the fact that how do we load people when they can't load? And during times of recovery, and one of the big issues that we have, you know, coming off of a knee surgery, for example, people can't get back into lifting heavier weights or sprinting for anywhere from 8 to 12 plus weeks, depending on the type of surgery and, and what whatnot. So that 8 to 12 weeks, as you guys know, people become super deconditioned. And then you have to make up all of that ground where BFR, you can implement it early, prevent some of those changes, deconditioning changes from happening, and then build a better base so that they can um, recover faster. And so in my opinion, it's been a, a complete game changer in therapy. I use it every day. I use it anywhere from usually twice. The most I've used it in a day is eight times a day. Uh, Jeremy here uses it multiple times a day too, and so he's on board with it. We'll talk to you a bit about it here in a sec. And um, so yeah, I use it two to eight times a day. I try to use it anywhere from four to eight weeks, depending on what the individual needs. And we do a pre-test and a post-test, and I would say majority of the time we see some really significant improvements in strength, where I really don't believe they'd make those same improvements if they couldn't use BFR. And a little bit more specifically with it too, that kind of leads in, because um, we'll get into other other progressions down the road as well, but if we're saying like, let's, let's use ACL for example, post-op ACL, like, do you implement it? How soon do you implement it? And then for how long typically would you do it? And at what point do you know to transition to more um, higher level or more advanced activities? You're part of the Owens Recovery Science Group. I am. Yep, you're certified. So that group, they, they start after, after surgery within one to two days. And anything for small incisions, they're starting very soon. And I know some people are starting to push the envelope, and even with a larger incision, like a total knee, they're starting a lot sooner. And some of the the articles are, um, the research that looked at total knees and BFR, um, some of those are starting anywhere from four to six weeks, but now they're starting to push the envelope sooner. So when am I using it? Our, Our physicians and surgeons will not let us use it until the incision is healed. So that's anywhere from two to three weeks. Okay, and then, Talk us through how you would typically implement that. So yep. starting out, like maybe even just a couple exercises within each phase of recovery, and then the typical time, I know you said you do like pre-test, post-test, um, but when in your mind is it kind of triggered like, okay, BFR served its purpose, now we go to XYZ. Yep. The test I put a lot of merit, of validity, reliability into is isometric quad strengthening. So what that means, or quad strength test, using a handheld dynamometer. So what that means is I have someone sit on the end of the table, I put a belt around their ankle, that belt is attached to a dynamometer which reads how much force someone can apply in pounds. And if someone is up anywhere between 70 and 80% of their 
uninjured side. So again, I test both sides, and typically if their injured side is within 70 or 80% of their other side, then I start to wean off of BFR. So typically what that'll look like is, we, let's say two or three weeks out from surgery, I have someone start BFR with some of the basic post-op exercises, straight leg raises, maybe if they're okay for it, starting some really mini squats or even something on the leg, <clears throat> excuse me, something on the leg press. And then from there, it's progressing more to closed chain exercise. So squats, um, split squat lunges, uh, step ups, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then I'd say once they've they've passed or they've they've worked on those closed chain exercises for a while, that's when we're probably approaching that four to six to eight week mark where I'd want to retest. And then when we retest, we see where that number's at. And again, if we're anywhere between that seventy to eighty percent limb symmetry index then um, we'll wean people off of BFR. And Jeremy's heard this numerous times. I usually ask people, um, you're more than welcome to continue BFR as long as you continue your own program on your own. And nine times out of 10 people will say, nope, I'm done with it. Because BFR is not pleasant. It's <laughs> strenuous, it's fatiguing, and people usually don't push themselves that hard. And so um, people don't like it. They like the results, but mm -hmm. they don't like the feel. So you give them the option of using BFR after they sort of graduate from it and no one wants to, which I think says a lot to a device that you can use in clinic for people who are recovering from injury or surgery where they usually can't push themselves that hard. Yeah, I think that's probably a good thing too that like most things that are going to provide the most benefit probably aren't very enjoyable while you're doing them. You know, like if, right. like if you're doing some other modality and the patient really likes it and wants to stay with it, that's probably not a good sign that it's effective. Absolutely. And I'll even say a caveat to that is with your athletes, sometimes they just want to feel that burn. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, oh, yeah. they can if they can't load. Right. So I think a lot of times, even if you're maybe you're doing it once a week after they kind of get to that point where you're starting to load per, like properly, and they're just not getting that, that burn, that extra little bit that they want, I, we see a good benefit with that, even psychologically, from all right, I'm doing something, I'm working, we're getting something done here. Absolutely. And that's, that's one of the biggest things after an injury for sport is that that psychological aspect and getting back to it. And I, I would say the same thing where I have athletes who it's like, once we get to that point, whether it's two or three weeks post-op and they start doing that and they're like, oh yeah, like we can, we can really progress with this and actually push it rather than just doing, you know, quad sets, straight leg races without it and things like that. Brad, would you do something different based off of the, what I just shared? Not necessarily. Um, something that I've kind of thought more about too is like, because um, I, I think probably post-op we would do similar things, um, you know, the, the same stuff you mentioned. An interesting spot for me is when you get to, um, you know, whether it's 8, 10, 12 week range in that time where you're transitioning a little bit more um, from that, that strength into more like power stuff, I guess. Um, or just more like explosive muscle action. I just am curious how you make that transition. So, so, so say like, let's talk ACL. So say from like the three month to six month mark where maybe they're not quite there in strength, but you want to start getting into a little bit more like plyometric type movements. How do you make that? Yeah, I, I chuckle because Jeremy and I, so as part of the residency program, once a week we sit down for two hours and I'm supposed to mentor him, but um, to be honest, I'm very lucky to be in this position because I get a lot of mentoring from, from the residents. And we had a long discussion about 
how do you structure a program when someone has so many different needs? Correct. Your needs mm -hmm. being strength, power, or still maybe a little bit of range of motion, depending on what they're recovering from. Um, and how do you balance that in a program? So I think that's that's a million dollar question, that's, and I'd yeah. love to get your guys' opinion on it too, with your with your guys' bold based training. Um, but for me, it's 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 selecting just a handful of exercises of each, and throwing it together so I'll start off having doing just basic you know we call them pogo jumps or jump roping type stuff just to sort of prime the speed of the motion um, maybe starting with some box jumps and jumping up onto a box so they're really not have to, having to do a lot of eccentric loading and then eventually just progressing from there but I, I think for anyone designing a program you always have to do your needs analysis and rank what's most important and prioritize that Nine times out of ten, the most important thing is strength because strength is the foundation of every other thing that we talk about, power, mm -hmm. agility, and you guys all know that. And so more often than not, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way I can I can maintain the strength program despite wanting to, you know, inch forward and do more because that person wants to do more, but we still need to keep that solid base going for strength so it's a challenge I don't have the great answer for you but mm -hmm. I would just throw in a couple exercises at a time and another thing with physical therapy is when they're in front of you what added value you can give versus the things they can do at home yeah. so the strength thing might be the most important but if you're very confident they can do that on their own or under the supervision of an athletic trainer at school or something like that you can redirect that focus that way and then if they need help more with coordination or mechanics, sometimes asking yourself how much added value does it have for them to come in yeah. and I can give them that too. So, and that's a very tough balance because there are so many different buckets. I think Mike Boyle taught me this, that they have all these different buckets, conditioning, um, agility, strength, power, range of motion, balance, and which of those buckets are getting filled and which ones aren't. And if you can fill one of those buckets more than anyone else, put your uh, energy towards there. I completely agree, and that's that's exactly how I was gonna just talk about it, is buckets. I think with, as PTs, we start to put more weight into certain buckets kind of throughout our time, whether that be in an ACL rehab or just somebody who comes in with patellar tendinopathy or so forth, and trying to get into that, you know, needs analysis, they come in, what are they working on? What do you know that you have that you've put your most chips in the bucket, okay? Now, what can I do in this 40 minutes or hour or whatever to add to that bucket one way or another? And whether that be on a certain day doing some more soft tissue work, getting them kind of feeling a little bit better if they're a little bit kind of beat up from what they have going on, or if that's okay, you know, now we have that good strength base, you're doing all the strength training at home, let's try and work on some plyos, some landing mechanics here where you don't really have a set of eyes on you at home. Right, and they're less usually less inclined to do that stuff on their own. A lot of people will stretch on their own. A lot of people um, will get their like elliptical time in or things like that. But in terms of like intense strength training or plyometric or uh, mechanic work, it really helps to have another set of eyes, like you said, um, and really focus your time and energy on there. And a huge part of that too is that confidence in returning to sport where you get to that mark where, okay, we've been doing a lot of strength training, I'm feeling more confident with it. You don't really want to just go over like landing mechanics and side-to-side and -side jumping and things like that and then just like, okay, go do that at home. You want like skilled eyes watching you and helping you through that. And I feel like that's a big part of it too where that's gonna provide you more 
um, confidence in your movements, less apprehension, so that you can feel more confident with it moving forward. So it's like, yeah, okay, at home, keep focusing on the strength. When I see you here, we'll be more explosive. And, and that's a way to implement it too that, that we've done before. The other hard part, I think, is as a therapist where you really want to advance them, but they're maybe they're lacking a little bit of extension in their knee. Maybe they're, they have a little bit more swelling or maybe they're doing too much and you have to kind of pull the reins back and, all right, we need to focus on this stuff. Because it's easy for me to get excited and want to do, oh, we can do this next and this next and this next. But if you're skipping steps, you're doing disservice to the athlete or the patient. Um, so that's when I find that hard for me where it's like, don't get ahead of yourself. Do what's best for them and what and what their uh, their biggest need is. I completely agree. I feel like I always find myself wanting to like so quickly get to like the jumping and the explosive and the sprint work because that's just what I enjoy doing the most myself. And you're right. You have to just every patient is different. You have to see where they're at and address those needs, even if it's not selfishly what you want to focus on. You know. So going back to BFR, how did you guys get interested? Who introduced it to you? And why do you think um, that like, it drew to you so much? I think for me, I, it started out in PT school. Uh, we had a little bit of like an in-service on it, and I hadn't really worked with it at all in the past. It wasn't in my first round of clinicals or anything like that. So the idea behind it at first, I, th- I think I had the patient suspicion, like, you're going to do what with what? You know, like, yeah. I'm going to cut off my, like, you know, these are all things that people think right away. Thank right? Every, yep. How often do you get that look when you first explain what BFR is to a patient? I would say more times than not. Mm-hmm. I think maybe less and less as we go on because either the surgeons introduced it to them, uh, they have some sort of strength conditioning background, so they've heard about it. So as we've done more BFR training, I think I get that reaction a little bit less. Mm-hmm. But definitely, if people have never heard of it, their first thing is like, uh, okay. I'll <laughs> yeah. uh, so it was introduced to me in school, and then on one of my clinical rotations, we started using it a little bit. And there's a bit of a learning curve the first time you use it. You you do have to really get into the literature and have some sort of background in the strength conditioning to understand. Okay, what's the mechanism behind this, and how am I using it to make sure that I'm using it effectively and not just having them do exercises with a tourniquet on their leg. Um, and once you start to understand that, you get a lot more patient buy-in because you can uh, explain it simply and so that they understand. I mean, John uses the biking analogy versus strength training analogy. And I think people, that really resonates with them. It's like, oh, that you know that makes sense. When I, I don't feel the same when I ride a bike as when I lift heavy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I started to see results is when it got my buy-in. So I, I haven't went through the Owens Recovery uh, course, but just in learning with John, reading a lot, and then going back and forth constantly, basically daily about how we're using it and why we're using it the way we are, whether that be exercise, whether that be patient selection, I think has been really at the forefront of our brain since I've been here is, you know, is this person appropriate and are they truly the right person to be using this in this phase of their rehab? Um, also finding, uh, like, what is the deficit and and how is the application going to be helpful to them mm-hmm. um and that's really how it kind of got introduced to me and how we've been using it here to just dive into that a little more too what are some of the things that you guys like three to five things where you look at it and it's like ah, maybe this person's not right for it what are some of the things that totally jump out at you like obviously contraindications but i'm talking like patient situation 
um, age, training level, just kind of all those things. What are yep. some of the main ones? The primary one, I've turned a, a handful of people away because I always will test their knee extension strength, as I alluded to before, handheld dynamometry. And I've had people come in where they are over 70 or even 80, over 80% limb symmetry index. And my goal with BFR is to improve strength. It's not power, it's not anything, it's pure strength. And nine times out of 10, it's for the quad. And so I, I've had other colleagues who use it for the hips. Um, they see a lot of people who have patellofemoral pain, so a lot of hip strengthening, but I use it primarily for the quads. So I've had people come in with already strong quads, but they're having pain, so, so we still get the referral for BFR. Um, so I've, de I've declined using it with people who already have decent strength. So then we tailor the program to something else. You know, why are they having their pains? So then we look at other things, um, which we won't necessarily dive into here. So, so that's number one. Um, number two have been just the contraindications that you've uh, alluded to. You know, one one was um, someone had a history of blood clots that we had to be careful with. We had to reach out to the doc. And then, I'm trying to think, there was one other person I declined for a medical reason that I just can't recall off the top of my head. But, but those would be the two big things, contraindications, precautions, and then already having decent quad strength. I think that's huge. I love what you said about the the strength and not using it for power like if you if you can lift heavy you're better off lifting heavy yeah. or explosive or sprinting or things like that um the other thing that you said with pain um let's dive into that i know it's kind of a rabbit hole a little bit but what are your thoughts on bfr and using it for pain modulation desensitization have you done some of that or what what, a, what feedback have you gotten on that yeah i'm actually currently using it with uh achilles tendon repair and so when we were going through kind of the more cautious stages early on, mm -hmm. uh, and he was having a lot more tendon pain uh, and, and just basically sensitive pain from the surgical intervention, uh, we were just doing straight leg raise with it. And he would actually get immediate effects of an analgesic. And so it was, for me, it was like, okay, well, there's something here, right? Yeah. And uh, even to the now, we started kind of transitioning into more of a strength phase, which has been nice because it's been a simple transition. He's able to now do a lot more in, in terms of now we're actually using the ankle, we're not focusing on the hip strength. But if we're gonna be focusing on those, those hip strength, uh, basic kind of get yourself going exercises, I think if, if the tourniquet can be helpful in terms of being an analgesic for them, then why not? As mm -hmm. long as they're medically fit for it. Yep. I'd, I'd agree 100%. And then second, secondly, there's two published studies that have looked at telfemoral pain and then another with anterior knee pain where each study recommended using BFR for people who have an irritable knee. Mm -hmm. And so now we have evidence to say that, okay, BFR can be used as an analgesic for people who may not be tolerating or unable to tolerate physical therapy. And patients... I think we hear more often, uh, more often than not, people feel better leaving despite feeling really tired after a BFR session. And whether it be the analgesic, whether it be you've turned on a number of motor units and now their knees, they're firing, they're firing better, they're more stable. Um, you know, there's a lot of different possibilities, but no doubt there's an analgesic effect to it. Absolutely, that, that's something that I've. Um tried a little bit recently too with somebody that I'm seeing that's having kind of lingering knee pain um, and we're more in the 
explosive phase of things, the power phase of things. But I've tried a couple times doing, instead of like manual work or things like that, doing simple like BFR to start the session just with like simple active range of motion or kind of like rotation or getting them into that position of the knee that they're not super comfortable with. Um, and it works as sort of pain modulation and then we're able to get into um, the explosive work and have more effect or at least less pain response during it. Nice. Um, and that's, that's something where, one, I like it because it saves my thumbs, right? Two, I think it gives the patient a little bit more autonomy. And three, I mean, the other positive benefits of BFR are still taking place, even though it is just active range of motion, just by having the cuff on there. And just exercise in general, right? We're getting those endorphins going again. Mm -hmm. These people are, are generally having a difficult time because a lot of times, you know, I, I guess for you guys, like how often are people who are post-surgical coming in being like, I just feel lazy because mm -hmm. I'm not able to do as much right. as I usually do. Absolutely. And so I think going back to even what we had talked about earlier, getting some of that exercise endorphins going and really getting them to feel good about their exercise again is, is helpful. Especially if they're super active before surgery and then they come in, they don't really know why. And it's like you connect the dots for them like, hey, you're not moving as much. Your brain chemicals are different. This is a way we can get you feeling a little bit better, doing a little bit more. It's not quite what you're doing before, but it's a step in the right direction. And people, and especially with the pain too, everyone comes in mostly for pain. Um, very few people I see don't have any pain in physical therapy. So if you do something that's A, productive, but B, also reduces their pain kind of quickly, I think it's just a huge buy-in from the patient and they're more likely to work harder at something that's quite difficult. Like you've, like you've said, it's not the easiest thing that we can offer, but it does give a lot of results and hopefully speeds up their recovery and getting back to the things that they want to do. Now, a big question I think for a lot of people is, let's say you're a physical therapist and you're in a standalone clinic and you really like BFR, but you need to justify to your employer why the investment in it is worth it. How would you, um, it's kind of a tough question, but as short as possible, give an explanation where this is so much added benefit, it's worth the investment. Yeah, it's a loaded question. Number, number one, there is absolutely research to support this. The, the issue there is that the research is limited on injured individuals. It's out there, but it's not a lot. So as of right now, I think we only have four studies on ACL reconstruction, four, uh, maybe five now studies on ACL reconstruction. There's five more that are going to be coming out. There are clinical trials that are going on right now. And so, uh, so I think in a couple of years, it'll be a much easier sell because there, there will be a lot more research out on post-op and injured individuals. But for, right, for the person right now, um, you could share the information that's out there. There's a number of systematic reviews that have reviewed the literature on individuals with you know, musculoskeletal injuries. There's a really good solid basic science evidence for it. And the other, th um, I, I, the other thing too is I think you also need to look at the authors of the articles who are endorsing these. And some of the top doctors in the nation are endorsing it. Um, one in particular is Ro uh, Dr. Robert LaProd. He now moved back from Vail. He was working out at Stedman Hawkins Clinic out in Vail, Colorado. He's now moved back to um, the Twin Cities here. 
and he's one of the lead authors, or, or maybe not a lead author, but one of the authors on um, one of the BFR study, uh, BFR review papers. And so you have one of the top docs that people are flying out to go see promoting this. I mean, that's that's sort of a big stamp of approval there. So I'd make sure you 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 find articles that have very good, high, um, um, well-renowned surgeons. Um, that's a tough question. I'm trying to think where else I'd go with that. I mean, that's where, that's where I would start. I think it needs to start with the research, but um, it is, it, it, the, oh, the other piece too I'd add in, just for liability reasons, is there's only one FDA approved device, and that's the $5,000 Delphi unit. And so mm -hmm. technically that's the only thing that should be used in clinical practice. So from a liability standpoint, that would be another way that you could, uh, you could sell it to your, to your employer. So those would be my recommendation at this point. Wonderful. I think even to add to that, I think we've seen even more and more surgeons reach out and ask about it. Hey, mm -hmm. what do you think of BFR for this patient? And leaving it in our hands, but at, at you know initiating that conversation. So I think at the end of the day, it's, okay, well, hey, we have this tool now and we're using it like we are. Uh, and if you <laughs> didn't have that, well, maybe you'd be losing out on a, on a patient that could be potentially having a better outcome or maybe a more satisfying outcome if they had the opportunity to use it. And so like we talked about earlier, I mean, if you're going to go in and sit down and try and sell this, it's like, okay, you know, obviously there's times that it's not needed, but when it is needed, it can make a big difference for these people. And the buy-in has to be that much higher. As we all know, if a doctor tells you to do something and you come to PT, the patient's probably going to want to do it or at least explore it and see what it's like. So it helps you on that end for the selling part where the doctor already said you should do it. Patients kind of research it on their own and you explain really well and show them your results. Um, that's awesome as well. So going back to clinical care, the question that I thought of today was if you have, let's say you want to do five exercises with a patient and they're post-surgical and you can't properly load them with weights, is there more or less benefit using BFR with one exercise versus using it with all of them? Yeah, these are some really good questions, Tom. We were trying to make the podcast as best as we yeah. can, so we gotta think. So do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not, it's not adding more exercises yeah. to it, but if you had five strength training exercises versus five BFR, is there a mix or is it BFR all of them if they can't properly load? And goes back to that principle. Yuri, you got something. So I, I think there's a couple different ways to think about that question. So first thing is going to be your patient tolerance. So we've, uh, we have tinkered with that in some regard of, okay, are we doing, you know, just leg press? Are we doing leg press and knee extension? Are we doing leg press, knee extension, and a couple of isometric holds? Uh, and then how are they feeling the second time they come in? So it depends on what your goal is, I think. If, if you do two exercises and you still wanna get some balance work in, you get a little bit into a time crunch too. I mean, the time under tourniquet's usually about six and a half, seven minutes. Uh, and so now you're you know 14 minutes or so into exercise wise if you're doing two. Um, and, and then you're, you're really having to monitor the patient's fatigue. And, and you're trying to kind of dump into all those buckets with what you're doing because we've had a couple of patients who tolerate it really well. We do three exercises, they come in twice a week, and both times during the week they're just rocking it. And then we've had patients who we do three exercises in, on Monday, and when they come in on Wednesday or Friday, they're, uh, they're drained. And you can tell it, 
you know, they're like, I'm tired. And it might not be like a muscle fatigue or muscle soreness, but they actually get like a neurologic fatigue. Um, and so we've been kind of toying with the dosage a little bit. I don't know that I have an answer in terms of is one better than five. I think that'll continue to evolve as more research comes out. But for us, I think it's more patient tolerance and what our goal is for that therapy session. I think you just summed up all of PT right there in about two minutes. That was one of the best <laughs> answers I've ever. You've mentored him very well. That was a that was an awesome answer, especially with what is your goal. It always comes back to what is your goal, what is the patient's goal, and that drives your care. So that answers that question. Um, wow, that was just a great answer, and I, and I really appreciate that. Yeah, I'd follow that up by saying, from a time perspective, we usually can't get five exercises in under BFR. Um, I'd also I'd also say too going back to the goal piece and that most people don't have issues loading their hips after a BFR surgery and if you're doing some of your basic exercises leg raises forward side um, prone leg raises you could probably just add weight to those ones and they tolerate it fine so I'd load up the hips more nine times out of ten like I said before we're using BFR for the quads the other thing too going off the fatigue thing is there's you can actually you can overdose them by doing too much quad two and i think we talked about this in the last podcast and jeremy and i've talked about this a lot if you look at schoenfeld's work he recommends 16 sets for a muscle group in a week that's your ideal amount for quad strengthening now if you did more you just don't get a you don't get a greater return on your investment so you can do more i mean if your goal is uh to build a tolerance and let's say you mean you need to play a sport for 60 minutes well then maybe you do need to do more but in our rehab case we don't want to overdo it and so if we do it if we're doing two bfr sessions and we're doing two quad based exercises in one session we're getting eight sets right there mm-hmm. so then we do two bfr sessions that's 16 sets plus they're doing some some stuff on their own that's a pretty darn amount of good quad work that they're getting yeah and so to answer your question, I think it comes back to what Jeremy said, your, your, the goal, but then also not using BFR because you can use BFR and just thinking, what can I, what, what am I, what can't I load? And let's use BFR for that. Wonderful. Um, so transitioning more into kind of strength training, when you're thinking about BFR, are you thinking the same principles as strength training where it's like two to three times a week, kind of eight to 12 different exercises staying in that or is it different at all for you in yeah. clinic with patients yeah the recommendation right now is anywhere from two to three times a week this is per the, the owens group and a, a review that article had come, that come out two to three times a week anywhere from two to five exercises and um what was your your other point eight oh yeah two yeah two to five exercises you kind of touched on the sets yep mm-hmm. sets is four sets typically one set of 30 followed by three sets of 15 tempos two seconds up two seconds down so you're getting time under tension of the muscle you're getting time under tourniquet and those are the big recommendations then at this point so, so once it's a little bit different mm-hmm. once they kind of graduate from bfr what do you transition to next in clinic let's say they're post-op acl they're maybe four or five months outside from surgery they're above that eight percent threshold where do you want to take them next running and power are my next two steps yeah 
so usually I have them at that point if they have 80% uh, limb symmetry index I'll have them start on a return to run program I'm a little, little lenient for that if everything looks okay I'll have them maybe start at 70% limb symmetry index for that test but um, usually I'm having them start some running some very light plyos as I mentioned like the pogos or the, the, the jumps to a box and then just a, progress, a progression from there into more increasing the intensity increasing foot contacts uh, increasing load all of that stuff and do you feel like you get a lot of that knowledge and background more from your physical therapy brain or more from the strength and conditioning side or do you really try to blend the two at that I, i'd be curious if your guys would answer too mine mine is definitely not from the pt school side we talk a little bit about it but it's not much i think we're all certified strength conditioning specialists mm -hmm. here yep so i think that provides a really just sound base to work off of. Mm -hmm. It's very research-based, straightforward, basic. That's where I get a lot of my training from, but then I was a sports performance coach for the uh, Velocity Sports Performance when they, when they were here in Minnesota, and I also did some assistant strength conditioning for um, the St. Ben's Division Three College, and I was a student up there. So that's where I get my background from, uh, but yeah, not a lot from PT school. How about you guys? I would, I would fully agree with that. Um, PT school does a great job of, of pretty much diagnosis and everything up to exercise progression side of things. And then, in my opinion, you almost need a little bit something extra to really be able to fully um, grasp a lot of that because, at least for us, um, we didn't have a ton of like progressing from here to there and then how do you load this way more functionally. And, and it was more so just all of the background knowledge. And you almost, like I said, you need something extra to get to that point. Um, what was your take on that? No, I agree with you as well. And I think any therapist who wants to get into that return to sport is going to start looking for that knowledge outside of school anyways. So whether that's through research, through classes, through courses, through different credentials. Um, and I think that's what makes a really good therapist that they can take areas of strength conditioning and PT and blend it together to help the patient the most. Because if you only know one or the other, you're going to be limited at some point. But if you can really start blending those, I think a lot of people are starting to look for that because they know that information's out there or there's people out there doing that through social media, through the internet, through TV or whatever. Um, so it's really cool that we're, we've, we've met a lot of different people who are starting to do some of that stuff. And that's why we started Bold Base Performance was we wanted to blend kind of everything we knew about a lot of different things and, and put it into uh, an educational and productive uh, opportunity for people to educate themselves on and to, to learn some more of that knowledge um, and also apply it to themselves. Or if people are struggling with things, they know who to go to and, and what uh, available information is out there. How'd you feel about that in school? Have you feel like talking to other therapists has it changed? Has it um, things like that. I think there is definitely still a gap there. I think uh, a lot of your learning from like a strength conditioning standpoint comes from your clinical rotations more than your didactic work in school. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think for me specifically, it was more seeking out experts in my community and saying, all right, what are they doing? And then picking their brain. Uh, I did a summer internship with uh, uh, through the Hockey Academy in Grand Forks and just got around their strength coaches for a summer and was like, all right, you know, why are you doing that? You know, why is this important to this athlete? Why is that important to that athlete? 
and then kind of from there asking them well who do you read who do you follow and then that's kind of how I've continued to kind of snake my way into the strength and conditioning side is just getting your hands on some athletes seeing what works what doesn't work and then asking the experts who do you read and who are the people that they're looking into to kind of better themselves and I think that's very important to go out there and just dive headfirst into it you can only read so much and look up so much stuff on the internet you gotta start talking to people and seeing what they're doing seeing what works what doesn't work looking at you know older therapists younger therapists older coaches younger coaches i don't think age really matters because you're going to pick something from them important no matter no matter what they're doing or who they are um but always asking those next questions like what are you following every time i, I see somebody i'm what book are you reading um who do you follow on social media who have you shadowed lately things like that um, I think that's a really good thing for a lot of therapists to hear if they want to get more of that knowledge of the strength and conditioning side of things is to go out there and start interacting with people and asking those good questions and try it mm -hmm. like, that's the big thing right like if you're gonna have a patient do something you should try it yourself first so mm -hmm. if you're gonna try and start putting together a strength program I think you should be giving it a shot yourself, whether that be exercise-wise, uh, sets, reps, scheme, volume. Start messing around with it a little bit on yourself as an experiment, or at least have a feeling for what it's going to be like for them, and then implement it with your patients a little bit more. And how do you feel like that affects your day-to-day -day, uh, education, so your own personal strength training? How do you feel like that has changed how you view each patient you see in clinic? I think for sure it's it's uh, realizing that it's a person-to-person -person thing. Not everybody has the goal of going back to professional Division One sports. Some people just want to be able to be active again. And so you're going to have everything from building up a foundation to trying to get them to be returned to running or, or just being active. And then you're going to have to be able to kind of morph back to maybe when you were a little bit more uh, into athletics, whether that be in your own experience or just trying to build up for something like that um, and then looking at you know what do they want to do and then kind of implementing what you've done in the past and then how you've changed I think that's the biggest thing I really like how you said you try it on yourself and that really gives you some insight because sometimes I'll give a patient something and I'll go do it on my own I'm like wow that was way too hard for me <laughs> and, and maybe I'm a little bit further along than they are in terms of strength or power or whatever and then I go back and I refine it um, or I'll you know, I'll just say like, you know, three sets of 10. I think that's a default for a lot of people. And then I, you know, write my note. It's like, you know what? I don't want them doing three sets of 10. I want, you know, three sets of five. Let's load them up. Let's do a little bit heavier, um, things like that. So you guys have anything to add to that? No, I, I think, and we talked about this last time we had you on, John, too, with tying it back into BFR, like experimenting with different rep schemes and, and implementing it either as a full workout or at the end of a workout or as active recovery on like an off day. Um, and that's, that's something that it's, it's hard because there's always going to be that gap between where the research is at, what you've tried on yourself, how things have felt, and then what you're like feeling confident and safe implementing something in with a patient. And that's something that we talked about last time where it's like, I've tried this on me. Am I at the point where I would implement that on somebody else and put my license at risk? No, I'm not there yet. Uh, the other thing too with, with all that is I think it helps helps us empathize with our patients too mm -hmm. and um, you know I think a, a, a number of probably all of us here have had some sort of injury and some rehab and more often than not that's the reason why we get into therapy 
but to say, you know, I've, I've done these same exercises for my, let's say, rotator cuff or this, and then, you know, I've had just the other day someone said, oh, you, you were dealing with this too? I'm like, yep, yep, you know, I had this, and I, this is what I did to get through it, and, you know, it takes a while, but, um, you know, if you stick with it and we progressively load, you will get better. You know, I think it helps just patients develop, you know, trust in you, but then just see that, okay, you know, someone else has been through this, and, you know, they know what to expect, and, you know, they just, they feel more comfortable going through the process. They don't feel as isolated. So I feel like, you know, just trying it out so that way you can empathize with your patients is super helpful. Absolutely. And to build on that, having that sense of community too, where, I mean, when, you, when you're when you a patient and you go into the gym and you see other people working on, like, trying to improve themselves with whatever their injury is too, it just makes you feel like, okay, we're all in this together. We're working through it. Like you said, putting yourself in those shoes of, you know, I had this injury and this is how it went. And, you know, it, it just helps a lot knowing, like, they're not alone. Because I think that's something I noticed too, where somebody comes in after um, something that we might see a lot, whether it is an ACL, Achilles, rotator cuff, something like that. And they don't know how often this happens or have you seen anyone with this before or things like that. And it's like, yeah, you're the sixth person I've seen today. <laughs> yes. with it, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so just having that sense of community and not downplaying their issue, but just yeah. saying, like, this is something that we deal with a lot. There's a lot of people rehabbing this right now. You're all at different levels, but like everyone's gonna get to their end goal eventually. Yeah. Sometimes people look for, it's almost like magic. Like what's this one exercise that's going to, you know, fix my problem with air quotes around that. And it's, it's, it's really trial and error. I could give you the four best things I think that are for you and maybe none of them work. Maybe they all work. Maybe one of them worked. Uh, maybe you're doing too much, too little. It's really a lot of trial and error. So sometimes I educate people on that on the front end. Hey, I think these three things are the most beneficial. Let's try them. Give me some feedback on it. That's why you come back. That's why you follow up. That's why you call me. If you got a lot more sore, you got a lot more better is because I want that feedback. It's a little bit of trial and error. And with BFR, I didn't get that buy-in until I did it myself. Yeah, I, I saw a lot of good research. You sent me a lot of stuff. I saw you present. Talked to Brad about it. Uh, saw some videos on it. Until I did it myself, I was like, wow, that's what it feels like. I can explain that better to people that I work with, and I also understand the benefits of it a lot more too. So uh, whether it's BFR, strength training, running, anything like that, the more you do it yourself, I really think it helps you sell to other people in order to help them out as well. All right, any other questions for today? Um, one thing I did want to jump into because I know that everything we've been talking about as far as um, the benefits of BFR from pain modulation all the way to um, the strength improvements and, and everything else that it can do. Um, I did want to get your guys' take on the article regarding the BFR and the exercise presser reflex um, because of all of, of a lot of the things I've looked at, that's one of the only things that's kind of come out and been um, negative or, or at least kind of just questioned the concept of it. So I'm just really curious to get your guys' take on that. Starts it off. Yeah. I, so kind of feeding through it a little bit, I think for me, it was a, okay, when we're going through this with patients, are we, are we checking? Are we double checking? Are we making sure that we're using it for the right reasons? So we kind of talked earlier, the right patient. So mm -hmm. when we're going through and we're talking about the different things that we're looking for, we're always talking about, and we're going through the precautions and contraindications with these patients. And they're brought up in this article in terms of uh, hypertension, heart failure, peripheral artery disease specifically. Um, and for me, 
we always go through it with the patient and we're especially if they're post-operative every single post-operative patient we're asking their their surgeon hey is, do you think that this person's appropriate from a medical standpoint to have this done mm-hmm. um, so I think it's it's making sure that you're checking your boxes uh, and I and I do think you know at the end of the day yeah there's there's definitely some things to be questioned from a BFR standpoint because we're putting these people into a pretty difficult exercise progression like we were saying earlier it's not comfortable mm-hmm. so you are gonna see these uh, this uptick in in systolic and diastolic well systolics blood pressure specifically and uh, I know in the article they pointed out that there's one in five people are, are undiagnosed with hypertension and I think that's maybe where we got to be a little bit careful uh, in terms of uh, implementing this with patients and just making sure okay we're going back we're doing a thorough review and, and making sure that it is the correct patient from that standpoint um, that being said I think uh, on the flip side is if we are able to properly load these people, then I think we're still getting into that press reflex from a sympathetic standpoint as well. If they're if they're able to properly load, and and we're getting them to the the right amount and from a strength and conditioning standpoint and principles, I think we're still getting into that kind of you know gray area, if you will, in terms of you know are they are they perfect for this? Yeah, I think. I think you hit the nail on the head there, Jeremy, in that the biggest issue that I saw that, that this paper brought forth was people who have undiagnosed hypertension or, or some sort of underlying issue. And more often than not, these people are already exercising. So they're already experiencing this, this presser reflex. And I think for, for us, asking patients, you know, I, I ask most of my patients too, you know, are you taking any creatine or things that may also increase your blood pressure? And more often than not, people say no. But I think of it as the same thing is going to happen with exercise. And if you properly dose someone and progress them accordingly, and they've checked the boxes, as Jeremy mentioned, with terms of precautions and contraindications, knock on wood, they're probably going to be fine. And the nice thing about you know, today's era is most people that are coming in through our door, say majority of them probably have some sort of Fairview doc that they are seeing for their, uh, pri- that, that's their primary care doc. So they're getting their blood pressure taken and their blood pressure would be in our chart. So we can also see that. So granted for someone who's self-referred or coming out of system, it's gonna be a little bit different, but more often than not, people have a good idea of what their blood pressure is. Yes. Um, we still need to be careful and just to make sure we're selecting the right patients and dosing appropriately. But, um, you know, for the most part, I think if we can check those boxes, they're going to be safe. Yeah. And sorry, Brad, one more, one other thing too, if they're lifting heavy and you pointed out this earlier, you know, if someone is doing five repetition or eight or, or 10 repetition maximum, their blood pressure may, might be up in the, uh, especially systolic two. 300 and that one repetition maximum I think we saw in the case study was up in like the 400 systolic blood pressure like the loads are so low that we're probably not from a loading standpoint we're not going to see that with BFR it's going to be a a metabolic sort of reflex the metabolic reflex so there's there's so many variables it's nice to bring us our attention attention because we do always need to take a step back and make sure we're doing things as safe as possible but for me, it didn't change anything with my practice. 
Yeah, I think when I read it too, what stood out to me more was if you're somebody who, um, you know, is just like you're a bodybuilder, for example, and you're just looking online and you're like, oh, I should really try this like limb occlusion stuff. It, it spoke to me more, this article, in the sense of like, maybe don't wrap your arm up with a tube and start <laughs> lifting and trying to, because there is some inherent risk with yes. it. Um, like you said earlier, the only device that's FDA approved or, or truly the most safe to use with this um, is those those Delphi units that you would use in clinic. Um, but that was the part that, that stood out to me more too, was just, you know, this this isn't something to just like fool around with and, and see like, oh, what, what amount of tightness on my arm feels okay as I do my bicep curls or something like that. I mean, you do wanna be, use clinical judgment, like you said, look into all their background and address those things too. Um, but if you're just like the recreational athlete who wants to try this, probably not the smartest thing to just dive in. I agree. Yep, couldn't agree more. Um, so, so, I mean, that, that kind of wraps up. Any closing um, things you guys want to discuss today as far as BFR, exercise progression, anything? Uh, I, only, I want to discuss one other quick thing. And you asked a question earlier, and I gave more of a generic answer, but how do you guys balance when someone is in, in – you asked this earlier, but how do you balance training for power, training for strength, hypertrophy, and all of and agility, all at the same time? When someone can only only train in that respect twice a week, so let's say they can work out four days a week, twice a week they want to run, and twice a week they can strength train, but at the same time they still want to build power, they still want to gain muscle size. There's just so many things to work on. And they want to they want to balance all of those things. So in terms of like the bucket thing, they don't want to put more more things in the bucket with yeah. strength or more things in the bucket with hypertrophy. They want power, they want strength, they, they want hypertrophy, they want agility. They want it, they want it all. How do you balance that with two with training twice a week? To make it a little simpler, is it, are we talking in season or out of season? Because I think so that's a big differentiator. So let's talk out of season. Out of season, okay. Um, for me, I really like the ideology of minimal effective dose. What's the least amount we can do in order to get the most amount of results? And that's different for every single person. That doesn't mean do as little as possible and just get away with it. But the goal, we got to keep the goal the goal. And the goal for most people of strength training is to get better at their sport. So if we're taking the big picture in mind, let's say, for example, it's a basketball player. We want you to be as best at basketball as possible. You don't need to deadlift the most amount of weight. You don't need to have the highest vertical, although that might help. You don't need to necessarily hit all of these high marks in the gym. But if everything we do allows you to be a better basketball player while staying healthy, that is a win for us. So I think if you keep that in mind and explain it to the athlete that way, they'll understand why we're not doing you know, a ton of strength stuff or a ton of power stuff. We're trying to balance it all um, and keeping the overarching goal the goal. How about you? Yeah, I would agree. I think specificity is is the biggest part there. Um, I do like, if possible, I mean, with two days a week, you got to balance a lot of things. But um, as far as from like a central nervous system standpoint, I like having a workout being directed specifically at one thing. So if we're if you're focusing on explosiveness, I want to do that for a workout and maybe that just means doing um you know two sets of power cleans like 
three 10 meter flies and max vertical jump, you know, a couple reps or something like that, where it's just, you know, super low repetition, um, low amount of foot contacts, doing really high intensity. But I, I do like, if possible, training so it's just like central nervous system gets just this one stimuli, it can adapt. And then maybe the second day of the week is when you hit more strength hypertrophy stuff. Um, I, I struggle a little bit with, um, you know, doing like a couple explosive things and then going more into like strength endurance and agility things because it just, I think the central nervous system is kind of like confused of what its primary stimuli is that it wants to adapt to. Um, but that's just myself. That's just kind of what I've been implementing lately. And going back to basketball, you want, if you're a high school athlete, you want to peak in February and March. If you're college, it might, it's March and then the NBA is a little bit later, WNBA, different time of year. So when you're at the point in the off season where you're really far away from your last couple games of that upcoming year, you need to be focused on building that base, building that foundation, probably focusing more on strength, hypertrophy, and recovering from the previous season. You are not trying to be in peak shape um, in July. You're trying to build that up so when the season comes, you're building into peak shape and your power and explosive and your health are at an all-time high. And that's why programming is so key on like the macro level of understanding. Like you said, if you're an athlete and you want it all, you kind of have to look bigger picture of, okay, I have 12 weeks from now until season starts, like Tom was touching on program in where you're going to focus on what areas and don't just like each day go to the gym and do one of each because I, I truly think that you're going to get much more out of it if you progressively build into it and you're addressing all the areas but within a given two-week time period you're only addressing one of those buckets like you talked about because then your, your nervous system is going to be able to adapt and then you go into that next phase you still keep the base from what you were just working on and then you can go into that next group and um, have that be your focus at that time. But what, what is your take on it? Uh, I'm opposite of you. Really? Okay. Uh -huh. I do a little bit of everything in, in, in one session. All right. Talk me but through I, it. But I've never heard, I've, I've never thought of that. Uh, trying to focus the central nervous system on one specific area. I mean, it makes complete sense. And this is where Jeremy and I came away with the, the conclusion, which is, as long as you have a rationale, there really isn't a wrong way to build a program. Exactly. And no one is ever going to be able to do, I shouldn't say that, someone might, and maybe you can pick it up off this podcast, but <laughs> will there ever be a randomized controlled trial comparing 10 basketball players that do your type of training to 10 basketball right. players do my type of training and see what the outcomes are? Right. I mean, there's just so many variables there. I mean, some of your athletes could be more talented than my athletes, and then they do better in that respect. Right. Because they're better, ta they have more talent. Maybe, maybe there will be a study out there. Maybe there is one out there that compares that. But I don't know if we'll ever know the answer. But that's that's what just intrigues me about strength conditioning. I think a lot of us are perfectionists in this world, and we want the best, perfect program, and we research and we experiment with stuff, and then when you lay it out for someone, it's like, gosh, you know, it's just, it isn't quite perfect. If we could add another day in, well, you can't another day in because they can't do it. You know, you're making it for that person. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, that's the program. So I think if we were, the, the thought and energy that we put into making a program for someone is probably a very effective and efficient program for what they need based off of, you know, what we've 
all the research and things that we've put in and what we understand in terms of the, the strength conditioning background. And that's the beauty of what we do is we could argue semantics all the time, but if we get the same results, we decrease risk of injury, we increase performance, in the end, it doesn't really matter the, like the method you do it. If you're getting those results, decreasing risk of injury, and they're getting better at their sport. And that's where like the art part of what we do, whether it's therapy or coaching, uh, comes into play. There's so much science, but there is a little bit of art into explaining to someone, this is why we're doing what we're doing. If they buy in and they're doing really well and they like what they're doing, then it probably matters a little bit less. But that's awesome that you guys have different viewpoints on the same subject but you can still see why the other one thinks that way. And if you're getting the same results, then it matters a little bit less how you do it. Yeah, and with all of it, context matters too, where you know what, what time frame they're in, if they have time to build in this program, and then once they get closer to season or in season, it would make sense to have a workout where you're implementing all stimuli at once, right? Because when you're actually playing the sport, there's gonna be multiple different stimuli. You gotta be balanced, you gotta have agility, you gotta be powerful, you gotta have strength. So it, it makes sense, but you can also build the base prior and then implement that as you get into the season or different things like that. So there's just a lot of things that you can play with, a lot of things you can toy with. Um, I mean, even just a lot of takeaways on, on within the program, things you can do too. So You have a different uh, something else yes. to add to that? Yeah. Kind of just yes. really yes. mix the pot up? You could tell John and I spent a fair amount of time on this during mentor time. Like It's, it's so fun with because you, you, know, you add in especially post-op. Okay, so not only are you dealing with a timeline in terms of getting them back to their sport and what they want to do, but you're also dealing with the fact that they have a surgical limp, right? So I, I think it's so much fun. Like we sit down and we'll talk through patients and, and where they're at and why why I'm implementing what I'm implementing. He's throwing in his two cents. And if you want to come over any time and throw in your two cents, you're welcome. But uh, we have a lot of, we have a lot right. of fun really really trying to critically think about why are we doing what we're doing whether it mm-hmm. whether it's a different viewpoint or whether it's hey this person thrives off of this and and giving them that as well but it's it's funny like that's what mentors time sounds like for us is is just throwing back ideas and, and trying to come up with the best solution and in the last six months maybe a year i've learned a lot more of what's your viewpoint what can I learn from that instead of trying to force you to see it my way because that's not going to work unless you really want to learn my way so if I can learn a little (laughs) bit from you then I'm going to get a lot farther I'm not going to waste all my time trying to argue like I said semantics and if you're getting results and he's getting results and he's getting results and I'm getting results let me learn from the best and maybe I'll do it a little bit different Um, so it's just it's awesome that that you know, all, all four of us, if you came in the room, you probably think you guys are really similar people in terms of background, history, things of that nature. And yet all these little different details we can be so different at. And I'm, that's a, kind of the beauty of, like I've said, with therapy and both the coaching as well. Um, and I mean, that's, that's why we're doing the podcast is to learn from other great people in the field and bring awareness to different topics. And I feel like we could have a separate podcast just on that question just on that one question you know <laughs> I'm diving into that too so um but yeah love having you guys on thank you so much we'll have to have you back and potentially dive into that um so thank you for joining us uh providing incredible insight on bfr exercise progressions programming all the above um where can our listeners learn more from each of you whether it's the twitter i 
Instagram account, whatever it might be. Like I said last time, I try to stay off the grid. Um, email is the best way to get a hold of me. If people still actually email nowadays, oh, yeah. okay. It's J Corbo C O R B as in boy. Sorry, C O R B as in boy O the number one at fairview.org. J Corbo one at fairview.org. And we'll we'll put that in the show notes um, for John and for Jeremy. Email is also easiest for me. That's uh, J O K E E F E three at fairview.org. Perfect. So we'll include both of those in there. Uh, thank you so much for everybody for tuning in today. Please reach out to John, Jeremy, Tom, or myself with questions or comments on today's episode. And please leave a rating and review to help support the show. Let's continue to grow together and change the system.